and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Uh, before we get started today, I just want to share a little bit of news. There will be some changes to the lineup at here, here at Virgin Most Powerful after the first of the year. And I want to let you know that Virgin or that No Nonsense Catholic will remain as part of the lineup. But there are going to be some changes in this program as well. Um, you know, the VMPR shows all follow the traditional radio format where it's in four sections and there's uh, breaks for commercials and all that so that it will fit uh, in the scheduling of people that have Catholic radio stations. Well, no nonsense Catholic. I've been, you know, been looking at the numbers and my viewership, listenership, and, you know, both uh, audio and video uh, all across platforms of, you know, podcast platforms and Rumble and the website and iHeartRadio. Um, people are listening to the podcast. And so um, I'm going to try using a podcast format. So the shows will be, uh, they won't be live anymore. They'll be pre-recorded most likely. Also, I'll be able to add some bells and whistles perhaps. And certainly uh, it will uh, impact the length of the program because, you know, a podcast doesn't have to be a particular time because it doesn't have to fit into a particular format. And I've also noticed that uh, by far the majority of my listeners listen for about 30 minutes on average. So, uh, you know, we'll probably do a show in more like a, a 40, 45 minute format. Uh, but also, you know, without the commercials, if I get on a roll, I don't have to stop and then try and regain the momentum, which is good. Also, if I have guests on and we go, you know, um, I won't have to tell them to hurry up and make your point because we got to go to commercial and also be able to uh, to go in a longer format if necessary. And those are the kind of things that uh, going with the podcast format is going to allow me to do for No Nonsense Catholic. And I hope that you uh, will enjoy the changes, that it'll be uh, good for you and for me. Also, um, in July, hopefully starting, not July, in January, <laughs> getting ahead of myself, Hopefully, starting in January, I'm going to be teaching some online classes through Virgin Most Powerful. Terry Barber actually approached me about this a week or so ago, and we've been talking about it. and uh, And I'll be uh, I'll, and I'll be addressing that maybe a little later in the program in more detail. But you know, in the uh, the Eucharistic revival, right, that's happening in the United States right now, whether you are aware of it or not, uh, it really got its impetus because of a 2020 Pew Research poll that show that 20% of practicing practicing Catholics either don't know or simply don't believe what the church teaches about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And, and that's, you know, not all that many Catholics are confused about. You know, I've been involved in evangelization and apologetics and catechesis for, you know, close to 30 years. I've been a diocesan catechist teaching RCIA for 15 years. I've been working on and off with Terry Barber since 1998. You know, I've, I've seen how people's beliefs about important fundamental truths have changed dramatically, even just in the last decade. And so this first series of classes is going to be about what the church really teaches about things like the Holy Eucharist and evangelization and ecumenism and, and transgenderism and science and, you know, uh, um, health mandates and so forth. I'm just to name a few things that Catholics are confused about uh, and maybe confused about whether they know it or not. Because I think we've imbibed a lot of modernism um, without maybe even realizing it. So all that's coming in 2024, which unbelievably 
is less than a month away. So, uh, you know, I look forward to that and I hope you will uh, um, take advantage of the new programming and these classes that are coming and so on. All right. Yesterday, I was actually on the phone uh, talking with Terry Barber about the mission of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. This apostolate was founded just a few years ago for the same reason that, that we've always worked together, to help Catholics fall deeper in love with Christ and his church, and to do that by sharing the gospel with clarity and charity, right? That's our motto. But it occurred to me that it's been, oh, and it's almost three years since I devoted an episode of this program to the heart of that mission, which is evangelization. So I'm going to correct that today. And we will start by talking about the Great Commission from Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the world. Those are the words of our Lord Jesus called the Great Commission. It is a universal call to evangelization. Now, in the extraordinary form, it's also the gospel for Trinity Sunday, which is appropriate because it is an explicit testimony of the three persons of God from the mouth of our Savior himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he says. But there's a lot to consider in these three verses of Scripture. First, the threefold office of the apostles. Before he left this world, our Lord handed over to his apostles uh, the prophetic office, it's the right and duty of teaching the Christian faith. Go and teach ye all nations. Number two, the priestly office, or the right and duty of sanctifying the souls of men by the sacraments, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then the kingly, or you might say the pastoral office, the right of guiding and maintaining the faithful in the observance of uh, the commandments, the teachings of Christ teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And our Lord didn't commit this threefold office to the apostles only, but to their successors as well. And, and that's plainly inferred by his words, go and teach all nations, and I'm with you all days, even to the end of the world. I mean, the 11 apostles couldn't by themselves have taught all nations, nor were they to live until the end of time. But their office was to continue in their successors, the bishops of the Catholic Church. Hence, the, the prophetic and the priestly and the kingly offices of Christ must continue in the Church till the end of time. Further, uh, this power given to the Church to teach and sanctify and govern is divine, and therefore not subject to, to any civil or earthly power, which means that within her own sphere, the Church is both supreme and independent. Just this last week, I watched the movie Beckett with Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, which is about uh, St. Thomas Beckett and King Henry II, which uh, revolves around this, this very topic and how this medieval Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas a Beckett, was martyred for defending the rights of the church. So that's, that's first. That's number one. Secondly, the Church of Christ must be Catholic or universal because our Lord said that all nations were to be received into the church by baptism and instructed in the Christian life by her. Well, the Church of Christ uh, must therefore be universal 
in place, if you will. So not a national church, but uh, a universal or a Catholic church. Also, seeing that Jesus promised to be with her all days, even to the end of the world, the church must be equally Catholic or universal in its duration, because it will be upheld by our Lord Jesus Christ in all ages. There is no time when the church could ever entirely decline or fall away. For if she did, our Lord would not be fulfilling his promise to be with her always. And that's significant uh, because virtually all non-Catholic Christian communities are based upon the false premise that uh, somewhere along the line, the Church of Christ fell irretrievably into error and corruption. But according to Christ's clear promise, this can never be. The Church can neither teach nor believe false and corrupt doctrine. But we have to understand that doesn't apply to individual Catholics, be they laity or consecrated religious or even clergy or even the Pope. It's well to remember that it was Christ himself who warned us about weeds among the wheat and false shepherds and wolves in sheep's clothing. But the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, even if she's reduced to a remnant, which brings us back to evangelization. Now, the word uh, evangelization comes from the Greek evangelion, comes into English as gospel, which means good news. And what is the evangel, the, the good news? Well, in a nutshell, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him in him may not perish, but may have everlasting life. That's John 3.16. Yes, the sign that the guy holds up at the ballgame. But the question is, what must we believe? That Jesus is the one mediator between God and man, as Paul says in 1 Timothy. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. It's Acts 4.12. Jesus himself says in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. And Jesus says, I am the way, not a way, not one way among many, not even the preferred way but the way, the only way, hence the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And that's why the apostles and, and their successors have always been missionary, carrying the good news to the four corners of the world, to share it with those who have never heard the gospel. Because in the words of St. Cyprian of Carthage, extra ecclesium nullis alis, Outside the church, there is no salvation. And because all of the baptized, and that includes you and me, all the baptized share in the priestly, prophetic, and kingly offices of Christ, we all have a role to play in evangelization. Hence the teaching of uh, Pope St. John Paul II, who said, lay people must be strong enough and sufficiently catechized to testify how the Christian faith constitutes the only valid response to the problems and hopes that life poses to every person and society. Not response to people. Okay, 
Hey, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I mentioned last week uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider's new catechism called Credo. And um, I don't think I mentioned in the first segment when I'm teaching these new online classes, we're going to be using that as one of our sources. And, I, and I, I, if we have time, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about it uh, before the end of the program because I think it's really, really valuable. So stay tuned for that. But right now, and not just on this program, but I mean right now at this moment in time, it, for the first time in history, the majority of Americans do not identify with any particular religion, anyone at all. Uh, Catholics are still the largest religious body in the country. But as I've often said, if ex-Catholic was a denomination, it would be the second largest. And the ratio of those leaving the church to those entering the church is, is now six to one. And those ex-Catholics leave the church for other Christian communities, some few for non-Christian religions, and increasingly for no religion at all. So way, way back in 1990, uh, which in church terms isn't that long ago, but can you believe 1990 was 33 years ago? Time flies. A tempest fugit memento mori, okay? Uh, St. John Paul II, anyway, back in 1990, he wrote, Redemptio Oris Missio, which calls for a new evangelization. And, and it, what's new? Well, he said, of course, we still have to carry the good news to the unbelievers in the world, but now we have to reach out to our separated brethren, that is, non-Catholic Christians, and to fallen away Catholics. Uh, and, and that's what we're going to emphasize today, that the call, the absolute necessity to re-evangelize the baptized. And that means taking a good look at what extra ecclesium nullisalis really means, not only for unbelievers, but for those who are not fully incorporated into the mystical body of Christ, and therefore do not benefit from the fullness of salvation, grace, and truth that only the Catholic Church can offer to our fallen world. So why, why should Catholics evangelize? Well, Vatican II calls the Roman Catholic Church the Church of Salvation and the universal sacrament of salvation, because she alone received from Christ, our only Redeemer, the mission and the means to bring people to eternal salvation. Hence the axiom outside the, outside the church, there's no salvation, which was coined by St. Cyprian in the third century. But that axiom, it has to be properly understood. But it seems you know, simple enough on the surface, but for centuries, the church has stressed the importance of understanding just what it implies. In, in 2001, the encyclical Dominus Jesus explained the axiom is not to be taken in a literalistic sense, literally, but not literalistically. And that's consistent with the official clarification um, in 1949 under Pope Pius XII and similar statements that were made in the 19th century by Pius IX and in the 18th century by Clement XI. And so what, what is this clarification? Well, the church teaches that just as in the Old Testament, there was only one ark of deliverance from the flood, right? Bodily death, and that was Noah's ark. So in the New Testament, there is only one ark of spiritual salvation, the bark of Peter, namely the Catholic Church. Christ says in Matthew 18, 17, if a man refuses to listen to the church, Treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, as an outsider. But how do we treat outsiders? By evangelizing them. 
See, because it is possible to be outside the church through no fault of your own. And if such persons try to follow God's will as they know it, they can be presumed to be in a state of, uh, of God's grace, to, to belong to the church uh, inwardly, we might say, even though not outwardly. And they belong, as it were, to the soul of the church and therefore can be saved. But that does not mean that they will be saved. Uh, Second Vatican Council put it like this. Those also can attain to salvation who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God and, moved by grace, strive by, they, by their deeds to do his will as it is known to them by the dictates of conscience. Nor does divine providence deny the helps necessary to salvation to those who, without blame in their part, have not yet arrived at a specific knowledge of God and with the grace and with his grace, strive to live a good life. God provides us the necessary grace, or at least access to that grace, but the rest is up to us. And see, what we just described, of course, is what is called invincible ignorance, right? That means having never heard of the gospel. You can't be uh, expected to, to live according to the gospel if you've never heard it, and God doesn't ask the impossible. Right? This is a matter, of course, that, uh, that, that presumes such people would be baptized if they knew it was a requirement, right? But then, of course, this is a matter for God, who alone knows what is in the heart. And then Vatican II further pointed out, um, concerning non-Catholic Christians, that many of the means of salvation are available outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church. First and foremost, valid baptism, but also the Holy Bible and prayer. And, and I suspect that you know, as I do, some non-Catholics were more pious and zealous for the Lord than many Catholics are. But ignorance is not some kind of eighth sacrament. The fact remains that our separated brethren are deprived of many of the channels of grace found only in the true church. Holy sacrifice of the Mass, the, the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, sacramental absolution for sins committed after baptism. I'm just to name a few. And just because salvation is possible for those outside the, the visible confines of the church, that hardly makes it certain or even probable. And that's why the new evangelization is not only directed at unbelievers, but also to our separated brethren. Because although other Christians may have faith in Christ, they deserve to hear about the one true church that he founded on St. Peter. The Catholic Church has the fullness of salvation, grace, and truth, and is therefore God's will for all people, right? The Bible says God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so the purpose of evangelizing other Christians is to bring about union with Holy Mother Church, which brings access to the fullness of truth and to the sacraments of initiation beyond baptism. And the other sacraments as well, of course. And touching on that question of extra ecclesia nullis salis, Vatican II puts it very clearly. Basing itself upon sacred scripture and tradition, the council teaches that the church is necessary for salvation. Christ, present to us in his body, which is the church, is the one mediator and unique way of salvation. In explicit terms, he himself affirmed the, necess the necessity of faith and baptism and thereby affirmed also the necessity of the church. For through baptism, as through a door, people enter the church. 
uh, better, you know, it might be better to have translated that people enter the church through baptism as through a door. Whosoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter it or to remain in it, could not be saved. So those who refuse to enter the church and those who refuse to remain in it, that, that's our separated brethren and fallen away Catholics. Although, you know, uh, they might not understand the necessity of it, which might be for them a saving grace. But let's face it, working out our salvation is hard enough for those of us in the church. According to Vatican II, those also are not saved who, although part of the body of the church, do not persevere in charity. They remain indeed in the bosom of the church, but as it were, only in a bodily matter, manner and not in their heart. All the church's children should remember that their exalted status is to be attributed not to their own merits, but to the special grace of Christ. If they fail respond to that grace in thought, word, and deed, not only will they not be saved, but they will be the more severely judged. It's no wonder that St. Paul said, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. In light of the clear teaching of Vatican II, I cannot understand how any Catholic can promote the idea of universal salvation. And I, and I say that in my humble opinion, those who do are definitely not following the teaching of the church, and that includes the teaching of Vatican II. You know, in a bit, we're going to look at, at, at how to talk to our separated brethren regarding their incomplete ideas about salvation, sensitive subject. But first, how do you go about participating in the new evangelization just in general? Well, first off, to effectively evangelize, it's necessary to build relationships and to exercise the virtues of patience and prudence. And that might mean relationships outside of, you know, Facebook and other social media. And having said that, many Catholics make the mistake of, of just putting it off kind of indefinitely or thinking that all they need to do is set a good example. Uh, you know, th these are the folks that will say, well, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Well, you need to remember they don't all sound like that, by the way. <laughs> you need to remember, St. Francis of Assisi, that, that anecdote is about him and one of his other brothers going to a village to preach the gospel. And what he did was he just went and did his business. And, and the, the young brother says to him, I thought we were going to preach the gospel. And he says, you preach the gospel always. And if necessary, use words. Well, well to remember that St. Francis lived in medieval Italy where everybody was Catholic. Right. Good example is important, in fact, essential, but action is also needed. And dialogue, talking to people, is always part of the process. It's also essential to believe what you're sharing, to live by the faith that you believe and be sincerely interested in the well-being of the people you're evangelizing. You know, when people sense that you're really interested in their genuine personal benefit, they're going to be far more open to listening to you. It's like uh, Terry Barber says so often, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's why an excellent way to begin evangelizing is by asking open-ended questions. What do you think about religion? Uh, what kind of faith were you raised in or, or were you raised in any kind of faith? You know, and this is as opposed to, you know, the old fundamentalist, fundamentalist challenge. If you die tonight, do you know where you'll spend eternity? Or the ever popular Nice to meet you. Are you saved? 
You know, have you heard about Jesus? Right? Instead, ask sincere questions and then really listen. Now, I've learned that, that for many people, and sometimes myself included, the opposite of talking is not listening. The opposite of talking is just waiting to talk some more. <laughs> and instead, you need to really listen. You need to really engage. I mean, so much talk about dialogue in the church today, dialogue this and dialogue that. Well, you know what? Effective dialogue, authentic dialogue, is engaging in genuine conversation, not just making a sales pitch. And the kind of engagement, that kind of engagement, is going to provide you a, a natural opportunity to give witness to Christ and his church because it puts you in a place of caring about the salvation of other people. Now, it's also to remember, uh, you know, it's crucial 30. to successful evangelization that you be in a state of grace. Because when you're in a state of grace, the Holy Spirit dwells in your soul, and the Holy Spirit is the principal evangelizer. And that means it's absolutely essential to be free from mortal sin to effectively evangelize. In other words, the Holy Spirit's doing the primary work. As for you, you're participating in the work of God. You're assisting the Spirit of God. And I hope that fact is comforting and freeing and empowering. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Oh, by the way, Richie, our engineer, just uh, shot me a little missive to say that he did not expect to hear his own voice coming back at him. Um, you know, we had our big major meltdown, uh, computer meltdown, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we're still kind of putting things back together. And he's giving me a little verbal cues uh, because I don't have a show clock on my end. So uh, uh, that's what it's about, and I, I'm sure you'll understand. Okay, talking about evangelization and, and the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, the goal of evangelization is to help others to a relationship with Christ, and, uh, and even to those who already know Christ, to foster membership in his body, the church. And so it's re uh, important to remember that the Holy Spirit always leads people to Christ and his church, and, and it's not one without the other. Non-Catholic Christians uh, evangelize. And, and in fact, they're known for evangelization, right? Going door to door and, you know, uh, have you met Jesus? But they do that in order to help people enter into a relationship with Jesus. And in that respect, Catholic evangelization is the same. But Catholic evangelization also includes helping others enter into full communion with the Church of Jesus Christ, his mystical body, the Church he established, where they will have access to the words of truth and the sacraments of life. Uh, to put it another way, Catholic evangelization is concerned with much more than simply helping people to believe in Jesus and accept him as their personal Lord and Savior. It takes a, a broader approach considering the fullness of grace and truth found in the Church. And that's, by the way, that's why people have to go through instruction before they're baptized, because there's, you know, believe in Jesus. Well, there's a lot to believe. And so a Catholic evangelization differs from the way non-Catholic Christians evangelize because our separated brethren either misunderstand or reject the Church as, as Catholics understand it. For them, the formula is admit you're a sinner, repent and be willing to turn away from your sins, believe that Jesus died for you on the cross, receive Christ by personally inviting him into your heart uh, and into your life, because the Bible says 
as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. Now, sometimes this process is illustrated by uh, some verses from the book of Romans, and I've seen it called the Romans Road. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Romans 6.23, the penalty for sin is death. Romans 5.8, Jesus died for our sins. Romans 10, 8 through 10, uh, to be forgiven for our sin, we must believe and confess that Jesus is Lord because salvation comes through Jesus. And since Romans uh, 3.28 says, for we consider that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, they conclude that we are in fact saved by faith alone. So to be saved, one need only make this simple act of faith, the sinner's prayer, so-called, and that's it. Case closed, all done. Uh, and to many Christians, this is evangelization. And, and once you've invited Jesus into your heart, you're saved. Some even believing that you can't lose your salvation. The next step, though, of course, is to, uh, to follow up. Take a stand for Jesus. Tell somebody about your decision. Read the Bible. Uh, pray every day. Identify with a Bible-believing church for the purposes of worship and fellowship and instruction and service. But not salvation, because you're already saved. Which is why so many non-Catholic Christians, I think maybe especially evangelicals, are church hoppers. You know, they go from one to another to another to another, just trying to find one they like, because uh, it doesn't really matter what church you go to, because you're already saved. But there are <laughs> some real deficiencies here. For one thing, John 1.12, in context, isn't talking about receiving Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. It's talking about the divine regeneration that takes place in baptism. Talking about sacramental grace. That's how we become the adopted children of God. The church isn't, isn't some kind of follow-up or, or afterthought, something that you can take or leave. It is necessary for salvation. But you can see why it is that our separated brethren find it so strange that we insist that the Catholic Church is the one true church of Jesus Christ when they be, believe that the church, quote-unquote, is a spiritual union of all Christians, regardless of denomination. And, of course, as, as we've seen, uh, you know, it, it is true uh, that the most basic level Christians are united. I mean, everyone who receives valid Christian baptism technically belongs, however imperfectly, to the Catholic Church. And Catholics pray and hope for the day when all divisions will be overcome and our separated brethren will enter into the fullness of the truth. That's the point uh, of the new evangelization. It's also the point of ecumenism. But in the present reality, Catholics must insist that the one true Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, and for a number of good reasons. And by the way, um, I know that some traditional Catholics have a problem with subsists in but allow me to say that that term is intended to show that while some things, you know, valid baptism, prayer, the Bible, some things are found outside the visible context of the body of Christ, the one true church of Christ subsists in the Catholic church, subsists in, in other words, like the substance versus the accidents. Okay, there are other things, there are things you can find outside of the church, but the Catholic church is the church from which those things proceed, and it alone. And for a lot of reasons, as I said, the Catholic Church, the only Christian church that goes all the way back to the time of Christ. I mean, look it up at the Encyclopedia Britannica, and it says right there, the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ in Jerusalem in 33 AD. All of the fathers of the early church 
uh, belong to the same Catholic Church. And like the Encyclopedia Britannica, the writings of the early church are readily available today online. And they know nothing of that modern me and Jesus version of Christianity. The followers of Jesus were originally called Nazareans because Jesus came from Nazareth. Around 35 AD, that term Christians was coined because the apostles claimed that Jesus was the Christ. And the Bible says in Acts 11, 26, it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. You note that it doesn't say they called themselves that. St. Ignatius of Antioch, one of the uh, church father of the first century, wrote around, around the turn of the century, AD 98 or to 107, somewhere in there, where the bishop is, there let the multitude of believers be, even as where Jesus is, there is the Catholic Church. And clearly in context, he expects his readers to understand what he's talking about. He, in fact, is appealing to their knowledge of the Catholic Church to make a point. So, you know, the term Catholic must be older than this writing. And so you might wonder where did the, the term Catholic Church originate? In fact, it comes from the Bible. You know, most people know that the word Catholic as an adjective means universal, from the Greek kathalau. In the book of Acts, we read, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was at peace. It was being built up and walked in the fear of the Lord, and with the consolation of the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers. That's Acts 9.31. Notice the scripture refers to the church in the singular, the church. It says, it was being built up. It grew in number. To the point, in the original Koine Greek, the expression, the church throughout all, is ekklesia kathalos. And that is where the term Catholic Church comes from. The Ecclesia Catholos, the Catholic Church, the church throughout all the world. So if someone asks, where's the Catholic Church in the Bible? Now you know, it's Acts 9.31. It's also well to know that many Christian denominations disagree about what Christ actually taught on really important issues. I mean, just take baptism, which the Bible itself tells us is the necessary first step to salvation. And, by the way, entrance into the Catholic Church. But one denomination holds that baptism must be by immersion only. And some approve baptism by sprinkling. Still others say baptism with water isn't even necessary at all. All you have to do is accept Jesus into your heart. So you see, it does make a difference which church you belong to. And for this reason, Jesus made it plain that there should not be many denominations when he said, there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. St. Paul takes up this theme when he says, strive to preserve the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. One body and one spirit, as you were also called to the one hope of your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's a lot of unity there in Ephesians 4, 3 through 6. So Catholics can't believe that Christ would ever sanction divisions in the church, or, or much less will them. The night before he suffered and died, Christ prayed for his followers that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. It's John 17, 21. The fact that Non-Catholic Christians are divided into tens of thousands of rival denominations is not the unity that Jesus prayed for. It is, in fact, the scandal of Christendom. 
if Jesus, who is the Son of God, second person of the Blessed Trinity, only founded one church, then it follows that all the rest of those churches were started by men. And although they may believe much that is true and have many members who sincerely love the Lord and have many means of salvation, the only true church is the one founded by our Savior, who promised to be with her until the end of time. So evangelization comes from the church and leads to the church. You know, And if we think we're evangelizing but never mention the necessity and importance of full communion in the Catholic Church, then we are not evangelizing correctly in a complete way, in a Catholic way. In other words, Catholics cannot take the me and Jesus approach. Catholic evangelization is ecclesial. It takes place within the Church, and it is oriented toward leading others to receive the sacraments of the Church. Furthermore, Catholic evangelization articulates the belief of the Church. When we speak to others about Christ and the Gospel, it's we're not talking about personal opinions. And that's why it is also necessary to have the ability to accurately explain your faith, at least on a basic level. And, and that's why we're going to be doing these classes next year, to empower you to be able to do that. And especially uh, in regard to these modern challenges that we're probably the first generation to, to face, at least in this the way that we're facing it now. So... All Catholics have the duty to evangelize whatever their state in life. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. Christ and the importance of the church that he established, and that's no nonsense. Back with more right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, kind of a special edition today. Just one topic that we're kind of going into the what Gary Machuda calls a deep dive, uh, and then that's the new evangelization. Uh, St. John Paul II talked about it as a re-evangelization of the baptized who have lost their faith. And in doing this, he acknowledged the urgent need for the faithful to reach out to Catholics who've drifted away from the Church and to give witness to Christ uh, uh, as, as well as the importance of fostering their return to a full communion with the Church. But the new evangelization doesn't stop at fallen away Catholics. It's also directed at all the baptized who have never been efficiently uh, or effectively evangelized. So to those who are you know, practicing Catholics but have never really made a personal commitment to Christ and the Gospel, to those who have been formed primarily by secular culture, to those who've lost their sense of the faith, uh, and to those who have been alienated in some way from the faith and the church, and, of course, to unbelievers. The new evangelization doesn't leave anybody out. All are welcome, shall we say. They're welcome to embrace the faith, because the Great Commission is directed to all people and all nations. It is, according to the National Directory of Catechesis, it is aimed at personal transformation through the development of a personal relationship with God, participation in sacramental worship, ongoing catechesis, and a deepening integration of faith into all areas of life. Its goal is both the interior change of individuals and the external change of societies. Now, if you're getting the impression that the new evangelization is spiritually and, and culturally holistic, taking that, that broad kind of wide-angle approach, then you're right. 
Another aspect of the new evangelization is found in the use of all the tools of the age that can be placed at the disposal of giving witness to Christ and presenting the, the gospel. Unlike, you know, a couple of centuries ago, Catholics have access to a whole array of media tools that can be helpful. It must be remembered that, though, uh, as important as media and other technology can be, these things can never replace a personal encounter. And although much more can be said, the, the ministry of the word is, according to the directory again, a, a fundamental element of evangelization through all its stages, because it involves the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God. And that is, I, I would say, most effectively done uh, in a personal conversation. So the process of the new evangelization includes uh, the, the following essential elements. So proclaiming Christ as the only Savior, the only Redeemer, bearing witness to Christ in our life and in the lives of others, preaching the gospel, right? talking about the life and teaching of Jesus and the good news of salvation, teaching others what it means to believe in and follow Christ as his disciple, both by example and by word, and then uh, participating in the sacraments of initiation, celebrating those sacraments. That's what, you know, that's the goal of evangelization is to bring people into the church through baptism or if they're already baptized through the other sacraments of initiation. And we start really with, with pre-evangelization, which, which builds on basic human needs. And so the need for security and acceptance and love and friendship. Okay. And then to demonstrate how those, those needs include a desire for God and for what he's revealed to us. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a longing of the human heart. Also, following that kind of pre-evangelization comes the proclamation of the gospel. That's the, you know, like the missionary preaching. And then you can break it down in, in, into other various stages, uh, and which the National Catholic Directory does. And this is the National uh, Catechetical Directory. This is all taken from this section on the new evangelization, which it says, you know, that, that missionary activity is directed towards both non-believers and those who live in religious indifference. Right, the people who say, "I don't know" and "I don't care." Right, the initial proclamation of the gospel to catechize. Those who do choose the gospel or who need to complete or modify their initiation into the church, right? RCIA for the unbaptized or for Christians baptized in, in communities that are outside of the church. And then to reach out to those of a mature Christian faith. We all of us, John Paul II made it a point to say that everybody requires catechesis, not just children and young people, but adults and even the elderly. It's about, you know, engaging the ancient mission of the church, which is to proclaim Christ as the resurrected Savior and Redeemer of the entire world. Just like in the first century, we of us in the 21st live in times where people don't know who Christ is, and, and, and many others have heard of him but don't choose to believe in him or accept him, and, and those who have lost their faith. And in all cases, this evangelization is urgent because the mission of evangelization is the mission of salvation of souls. Now, evangelization brings Christ into the world, but it also integrates the world into the teaching of Christ. We're not just evangelizing individuals, but through them, the culture itself, right? Catholicism has proven to be an excellent world builder 
But that's not his primary purpose. His primary purpose is the salvation of souls and the greater glory of God. All right, uh, you know, we only have a couple minutes left, and I did mention that I'm going to be teaching some online classes at uh, Terry Barber's behest in the new year. Hopefully starting in January, they'll be available for a donation. I don't know exactly what that's going to be yet. That's for the, the people in the office to figure out. But I'll be talking about how the church applies the unchanging truths of the deposit of faith to the, the, the very changeable concrete circumstances of the faithful today and throughout the past 2,000 years. I also mentioned last week why that makes old catechisms so valuable, because the truth does not change. And really, it used to be expressed more clearly than it is today. You know, I think many modern Catholics would squirm in their seats at the truths of the faith if they were presented in an unvarnished way without the, the politically correct euphemisms and the inclusive language and all of that. Long been my contention that Benedict XVI was right when he said we must interpret Vatican II in the light of tradition and not reinterpret tradition in the light of Vatican II, what he calls the hermeneutic of renewal in continuity versus the hermeneutic of rupture, which considers post-conciliar Catholicism virtually a new religion. And the problem is that many of us have imbibed the basic tenets of that hermeneutic of rupture because, you know, I mean, more than a generation of catechetical materials and, and liturgies that are, that are designed to convince us that the Mass is a celebration of the community and everybody without exception is going to go to heaven. Which, of course, I mean, that's the elephant in the room regarding the current attempt at Eucharistic revival here in the United States. Because the bishops need to understand you can't fix a problem until you deal with the cause. And that is why I thank God that Bishop Athanasius Schneider has taken a bold step in the restoration of Catholic catechesis with his new book, Credo, Compendium of the Catholic Faith. And while, while it makes reference to councils and popes from before the Second Vatican Council, and often uses the, the Douay Reims translation of Scripture, uh, it is in many ways the most up-to-date catechism in print. In fact, you know, for the first time in 50 years, a, a Catholic bishop has published his own comprehensive presentation of the faith, what to believe, how to live, how to pray as Christ taught. And of course, uh, he doesn't scruple to quote uh, Vatican II or, or Pope John Paul II, along with you know the other popes and councils of the whole history of the Church. It is a compendium of the Catholic faith. It's a clear summary of Catholicism as a whole, and it employs the tried-and-true question-and-answer format that was so popular for catechesis for, for centuries. Right? The word catechesis actually comes from a Greek word that means to echo. Question-and-answer was always the preferred method of teaching the faith. And before you dismiss it as preconciliar uh, you know, uh, teaching, it might be well to note it's also the fundamental approach of internet search engines. And I'll be using this catechism in my online classes this year, along with uh, you know, a wealth of other materials. Because I remember that St. John Paul said lay people must be strong enough and sufficiently catechized to testify how the Christian faith constitutes the only valid response to the problems and hopes that life poses to every person and society. There's no evangelization without that. You can't share your faith if you don't know your faith. And, you know, I called Credo up to date because Bishop Schneider boldly articulates timeless truths while engaging the current issues 
uh, with, with courage, I would say, but also with kindness and without compromise. That compromise that's so common in modern catechetical materials and so detrimental to our, you know, modern Catholic understanding of the true faith. And that's what I'll be doing in these classes is applying the Catholic faith to the unique challenges that we face today. And, you know, Credo offers clear answers on a number of topics that we're going to be covering as well. So social media and other personal technology, uh, science and evolution. You know, science can teach you all sorts of facts, but you know what it can't teach you is the tr truth. Uh, what about uh, just war or the death penalty or gender ideology? What about health mandates and vaccines, uh, world religions, uh, schooling, parenting, religious liberty, free speech? Um, uh, the women's role in the church or, or, you know, the female clergy scandals in the church, the infallibility of the church's teaching, the infallibility of the Pope, um, the, the, the meaning of the church's magisterium. We're going to talk about error. We're going to talk about pornography and, and, uh, and other sexual issues, the, the sins against the sixth and ninth commandment, true prayer and right worship. I expect we're going to touch on on politics, communism, Freemasonry, globalism, uh, transhumanism, which is a you know I mean nobody said had to deal with transhumanism before before we came along. Uh, drug use, uh, what 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 constitutes? Uh, and this I, I think we're going to be an, an emphasis on this. This is where it's going to to I mean this is really the motivation is the authentic renewal in the church, and as they say on TV, much much more. So uh, in the next couple of weeks here, before the, the year ends, I'm going to give you more information on that. I suspect I'll be on the Terry and Jesse show. Also reminding you that uh, we're going to have a new format for No-Nonsense Catholics. Still going to be part of the Virgin Most Powerful lineup. Still going to be able to find it every place you find it now. But uh, going to be kind of changing formats and, uh, and doing it as a podcast. All right. Well, we're getting close, I guess, to the, uh, to the end of the program here. Got another minute or so. And uh, I want to say uh, one last thing about Credo that, you know, the modernists and the, and the Pope's planers and all the other usual suspects have, have already come out to, to condemn this really important work as being traditionalist or fundamentalist or whatever. But you know what? He consulted with an international panel of theologians and has um, endorsements from some of the best minds in the church today. I'm going to be talking about that next week and lots more uh, on uh no Nonsense Catholic. Till then, may God richly bless you and your family. And thanks for listening. 